listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord. If you grew up in a, <clears throat> excuse me, if you grew up in a family like mine with five kids, we did not fly anywhere. It cost too much. We drove and drove and drove. As a kid, I got very good at entertaining myself for long hours in the car. <clears throat> it's easier now, of course. You've got your phones. You can play games on your phone. You can read a book. You can watch YouTube or Netflix. Uh, we also now take those long car drives as a family, and I've discovered that when I'm the driver, the other people in the car don't particularly appreciate it uh, if I try to watch Netflix or YouTube or read a book. So on long car rides, I have to pass the time uh, in my favorite way by doing math problems in my head. You know those word problems we had when we were younger in middle school and high school? They always go something like this. If Joey has 560 miles left in his drive, how much time will Joey save if he drives 80 miles an hour instead of 70 miles an hour? Does anyone else do that? Did any of you immediately do the math in your head? You're like, an hour? You'd save an entire hour, yes? Yeah. And then, you know, you solve the math problem and you kind of look down at the cruise control and start bumping it up towards 80 because it's less bad if you slowly increase your speed to 10 miles over the speed limit. And then, of course, you have a new math problem. How much time will Joey save if he has 560 miles to go if he goes 85 miles an hour? instead of 80 miles an hour. Roughly another 25 minutes, probably not worth it. Now, look, kids, don't do this at home. Um, I know this is not okay. Like, go the speed limit, that's what you're supposed to do. But I always sort of tell myself it's, a, it's okay by saying, well, I'll just, uh, if I get caught, I'll just pay the fine. I'll just pay the ticket and, you know, kind of go on with what I'm doing, trying to get where I want to go. There's a very similar dynamic happening in Matthew 6, 1 through 8, this passage that we're studying this morning that you just heard Pastor Jeff read. 
God is bringing a lawsuit against his people. It's a courtroom scene that we're, that we're witnessing, and he's coming to them saying, look, you've been treating me the way we treat a ticket for speeding. We get pulled over, and there's a part of us that says, oh, all right, officer, okay, fine, you caught me. Now, what's this going to cost me? How much am I going to have to pay to make it all go away? This is the accusation that God is bringing against his people in Micah 6, 1 through 8. So let's, let's jump in. As we move through these eight verses, there are kind of three main sections or, or parts, movements to this courtroom scene. The, the first movement, the first five verses are God asking, bringing his complaint and, and asking this question, well, what have I done to you? What have I done that makes you walk away from me? And then we see the response of the people in verses 6 and 7 as they respond with, okay, God, you caught me. What's it going to take to make this right? What's it going to cost me? And then finally in verse 8, Micah jumps in and tells us, hey, you already know. You already know what God requires. You already know what God asks. And as we, we go through this complaint, this courtroom drama, uh, Micah is going to bring us to this key points or key idea. I see a whole bunch of you guys with your note cards and your, uh, your service booklets and all of those things ready to write this down. So we'll put it up on the screen for you. Here's the key idea, the one thing I want you to write down. And spoiler alert, leave a little room because we're going we're gonna to modify it near the end. So leave yourself some room on the page. But here's the key idea. You can't buy off God at any price. You can't buy off God. Not at any price. So if you haven't turned already to Micah 6, 1 through 8, turn there now. Let's jump in. These first five verses are, in my mind, I've summarized them as God essentially asking the question, what have I done? What have I done to you? Why have you abandoned me? What did I do to deserve this? So, Micah 6, 1 through 5, beginning in verse 1, well, really verses 1 and 2, they set it up for God to plead his case, to bring his complaint. Micah starts us out saying, hear what the Lord says. And then he calls on the mountains and the hills and the enduring foundations of the earth to act as witnesses, to listen, to pay attention to what God is going to say, because, he says in verse 2, the Lord has an indictment against his people. And indictment, that's the fancy legal term for a formal charge, an accusation, a complaint. Hey, I'm bringing this complaint against you. Now listen to me. And we hear the complaint in verse 3. God says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. What have I done? And he's coming at them with this complaint because the whole culture of the nation from the king at the top to the beggar at the bottom is supposed to be in a committed and covenant relationship with God, a relationship that overflows into how they treat one another with justice and kindness, with mercy and humility. But their actions are showing that's not the kind of life that they want. That's not the kind of relationship that they want. So now God's coming to them and saying, 
What have I done to you that you're walking away from this relationship that we had? He's pictured here, God is pictured almost like, um, like we would picture a, a parent in a counselor's office, just pouring their heart out because their kid has rebelled, stormed out of the house, shouting, I hate you and I never want to see you again. And the, the parent is, is sitting there in disbelief saying, what did I do? What did I do? I don't understand. I, I fed you. I clothed you. I, I loved you as best as I knew how. What did I do? Because in a, in a relationship like that, there's an implication that all of the love and attention that the parent pours into the child, gives to the child, creates an obligation in that child to respond back in a certain way, at least to attempt to understand their parents. And that same obligation is in this relationship here. God is saying, I've poured love into you. I've fed you. I've clothed you. I've loved you perfectly. And you run out. What did I do wrong? God's saying, I held up my end of the covenant. I, I performed my part of, of our relationship. Why haven't you kept your end? And to make his case, to back up that complaint in verse 3, to make his case, he gives us verses 4 and 5, a recitation of, of the history. He says, don't you remember, didn't, didn't I bring you out of slavery in Egypt? Didn't I give you leaders, good leaders to guide you like Moses and Aaron and Miriam? Didn't I intervene and stick up for you when, when Balak, the king of Moab, was trying to overpower you? Didn't I take you from Shittim to Gilgal, from one side of the, of the river, the Jordan River, to the other side through Jericho? Like, didn't, didn't I protect you as I gave you the land that I promised to you? He says, don't you remember, didn't I treat you rightly, righteously? brings us back to that question, what have I done? What have I done to you? How have I tired you out? Why are you weary of my covenant and my blessings? So we had an agreement. We were going to relate as a, as a king and his people, as a husband and his wife, as a father and his child. What, what have I done? Why do you run away? And the, the pathos, the emotion of that question brings us to the people's response in verses 6 and 7. God has made his case. Look at our history together. What, what have I done that justifies your response? And the people respond in verses 6 and 7 with a basic, offensive question. Okay, fine, God, you're right. Now, what's it going to cost me to make this right? You caught me, all right, we're not living up to our side of the covenant. What's it going to cost? See, in verses 6 and 7, Micah is um, he's speaking for the congregation, for the people, and, and giving their response, and he's sort of overplaying their response in a sense, using some sarcasm and some irony to, uh, to make a point. He's pushing the emotion of their response to its limits, in order to show them that the way they view their relationship with God is just way too 
transactional. It's a little, it's way too much, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. What is it going to cost me to keep you happy? What's it going to cost me to keep, so I can keep doing what I want? Look at verses 6 and 7. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, and, and as we look at these lines, notice the intensification of emotion, how the emotion just keeps ramping up line after line. It, it starts in verse 6 with the question, with, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? <clears throat> and Micah, he's putting the people in the position of saying, okay, okay, wow, um, if what God says is true, then how do I make that right? How do I come back to him? Which I think is a sincere question. He starts with a sincere question and then pushes the emotion to the limit with the answers that he suggests in verse 6. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? I know that's what he wants. He says so in the law, burnt offerings. Shall I come before him with calves a year old? Because year-old calves were the best of the burnt offerings. I could bring what God asks. Maybe I could bring, bring the best of what God asks. It continues, verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Okay, if I can't bring the best, can I at least bring a lot? Maybe that's what God wants. Will the Lord be pleased with ten thousands of rivers of oil? I'll bring a lot, a lot. And then it really intensifies at the end of verse 7, the second half of verse 7, he says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Is that what God wants? Does he want me to give up the most important thing in my life, my firstborn, my heir, my security, my future, my name? Is that what God wants? God, what do I have to give you for you to be happy with me again? It's almost like one of those stereotypical romantic comedy scenes where the boyfriend just got dumped for neglecting the relationship and he goes back to the girl and he's just on his knees. He's just like, please, no, don't break. I'll, I'll give you anything. I will do anything. What will it take for you not to break up with me? Do, do you want, what do you want? Do you want perfume? Do you want flowers? Uh, do, do you want dinner, a night out on the town? Will you, will you be happy with a room full of of flowers and gifts, maybe rivers of roses? Do you want everything I have? What will it take? Just don't, don't break up with me. As you can catch, Micah's kind of, he's pushing it here a little bit in order to make a point. And by portraying the congregation with such emotional intensity and, and overstating their willingness to give, he, he's making this key point hit home. You can't buy off God at any price. You can't buy off God. See, this relationship, it's not about bringing offerings. It's not about bringing sacrifices. It's not a transaction. It's not an exchange. It's not like going to the store and saying, I want that, I'll give you this, and then you trade it. That's not what it is. Like the boyfriend who comes to his girlfriend and, and offers all of these things. If she's smart, she looks at him and says, honey, you got a problem money can't fix. And God's looking at his people saying, you've got a problem 
sacrifices won't fix. Because when they realize they have a problem, they say, okay, God, you caught me. What's the fine? What's the fee? What's the cost? What do I need to pay in order for everything to go back to the way it was? How many sacrifices do you want? What kind of sacrifices? Just how good do they have to be for this whole thing to be okay again? What's it going to cost me? God is coming to them and saying, what did I do wrong? How did I tire you out? How did I weary you? Why are you, why are you abandoning me? And they're saying, okay, fine, you caught me. Now, what's it going to cost? What do you want? What do you command? What do you require? And of course, that brings us to verse 8. What does God require? Verse 8 is certainly the most soaring and poetic part of this section, and maybe of Micah as a whole. It's one of those, uh, those verses that seems to sum up the whole ethical obligation of the Old Testament. Micah says here, what does God want? Well, he's told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? He's, he has already told you. You already know. You have already been told what God wants. Micah's responding to the emotional extravagance and the, the hype of the previous two verses, right? By not answering their question, he's effectively saying, no, God is not asking for the sacrifice of your firstborn. He's not even asking for the sacrifice of rivers of oil and thousands of rams or yearling calves or burnt offerings. See, those sacrifices, Micah's not getting rid of the whole sacrifice system at all. Now, remember, uh, for, especially for those of you who maybe haven't read the Bible all the way through, this is all happening before Jesus, before Jesus' once and for all sacrifice. So this is still back when there's this system where God's people bring an offering, bring a sacrifice that is then uh, ritually killed, and it atones for or covers their sins temporarily until Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, comes. But these sacrifices he's talking about, these are for his people who want to walk in his ways but have left the path. Mike is saying, you already know the path you're supposed to be walking. It's, you've already been told what to do. God doesn't require anything more of you than simply doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with him. That's all God's asking. Obedience is better than sacrifice. But this whole, this whole system, think, think of it this way, those, those sacrifices. Uh, maybe this will help us put it in our terms so we understand what Mike is doing here. The, the sacrifices are kind of like the, that center barrier and the rumble strips on a highway. You're driving down the road, you're, you're headed in a particular direction, and if you stop paying attention or you start weaving off or something like that, that center barrier, those rumble strips bring you back into or back onto that path. Right? That's how the sacrificial system worked for people who are on the, the path as part of God's family are driving toward justice and kindness and mercy and humility. It's for those who want to go in that direction but have veered off that the sacrificial system brings them back into the right, into the right direction, onto the right path. But if you're driving in the whole other direction toward injustice and cruelty and ruthlessness and pride, 
I mean, then besides needing to ask yourself if you even are part of God's family, you can't expect the sacrifices to buy you off and give you a pass with God any more than you would expect that center divider and those rumble strips to keep you safe on a road that is driving directly off of a cliff. They're not going to work for you. See, the, the doing of justice, the loving of kindness, the, the humble walking with God, it, that's not what saves us. But it is the requirements of how the people of God, the people who are already part of God's family, are supposed to behave. It's how we're supposed to be. Justice and kindness and mercy and humility, that's how the people of God act. That's what the family of God looks like. But it was possible in this time to come to that whole system of offerings and sacrifices for, for two very different reasons. Uh, you could come to it well as a person saying, I veered off the path that God is calling me to, and I want to be back on that path. Here's my gift. Here's my offering. Or you could come to the system as the person who says, I'm, I'd like to continue going the way I want to go and doing what I want to do. If this is what it takes to cover me over so I'm good, then here's my payment. Let me buy you off. But remember our key idea, you can't buy off God at any price. You can't buy him off. God doesn't want your sacrifices. He doesn't want your offerings if those are things that you are bringing as payment to get him off of your back. He only wants the, the sacrifices and the offerings if they're a legitimate part of a person coming back to him, wanting to grow into being what a, a son or daughter, a member of his family is like, to become so like one of his children that, that doing justice and, and loving kindness and walking humbly with him is just what flows out of us. God's saying to his people, look, I've got a, I got a bone to pick with you. We, we've got a problem here. Apparently, I've done something because you're walking away from me. And the people are responding with, uh, okay, what's it going to cost to make it right? And God's saying, look, I don't even think we're, on, we're talking about the same road here. You're going in a whole other direction. All I'm asking you to do is do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with me. So how do we do that? One of my, uh, my daughter's favorite things for us to do is to go on walks together. It's about all we can do right now during all of this stuff going on. So we'll go for walks, and oftentimes she will grab my hand and she'll say, Daddy, you just lift your feet. I'll pull you where I want you to go. And then as we walk along, she points out things that she loves and tells me about the things that she sees. You know, Daddy, do you see that flower? Oh, isn't it so pretty? Daddy, look at those clouds. Look at the sunset. Look at the sunrise. The clouds look like puffballs today. Daddy, do you hear the birds? Ooh, look at this gross bug. It's so cool. And when she first started doing this, you know, my thought as a sophisticated grown-up was, okay, honey, you know, if you've seen a f one flower, you've seen them all. You'll get over this eventually, right? 
I'd actually forgotten how to see the world around me. Because uh, I'd figured if you've seen one flower, you've seen them all. And Anna's saying, no, if you've seen one flower, you've seen one flower. And there are so many more to see. I'd forgotten how to see the world around me until I started seeing it and learning to love it through her eyes as she pointed out to me what she saw and what she loved and showed me how to love those things. Even on walks now without her, I find myself paying attention to the things that she would pay attention to if she were with me. Pointing things out like, oh, Anna would love those flowers if she were here. Oh, she would love what the clouds are doing right now. She would love that gross bug that somebody ran over. And I start collecting the flowers and giving them to her when I come home or come home and tell her about the clouds or the bugs that we saw. See, our life with God works, works the same way. I mean, in humility, admitting we have something to learn, we build the habit of just walking with God, building that relationship, following his lead. And as we walk with him, he tells us what he loves, mercy and kindness, that faithful, permanent love. Those are the ideas that are behind the word that your Bibles may have translated as mercy or kindness or loving kindness. And because we walk with him and we learn to love what he loves, we start to want to do what he does which is justice in this passage. I mean, it's a simple word that just means putting things right, putting things the way they should be, back to the way they're supposed to be, the way they were meant to be from the beginning. That's justice. But we're all, we're all going to disagree on what we think justice is if it doesn't start with humbly walking with God and learning to love what He loves. Holding on to that humility that tells us that we probably don't have very much figured out about what exactly to do. But as we walk with Him and learn to love what He loves and do what He would have us do, then our actions can be just and bring about justice especially for those, Micah has reminded us over and over again, especially for those who cannot advocate for justice for themselves. Now, I know it would be really helpful at the end of a sermon like this to give some very specific guidance on what we should do, what, what positions to support, what teachings to denounce, you know, how you should vote, what you should protest, things like that. It, it, would be helpful, I'm sure, but in passages like this and other passages in the Hebrew Scriptures that are like this, they never tell us what to do. They're solely focused on telling us how to do it. So I can't give you too much detail or specificity. All I can tell you is that Micah is calling his hearers and calling us to choose to walk humbly with God, learn to love what God loves, and then do justly in all that we do. So whether you're out protesting or protesting against the protests, 
you're voting or choosing not to vote, you're sending your dollars to one party or another, you're promoting one idea or denouncing another, whatever you're doing, Micah 6.8 tells us how to do it. Humbly walking with God, learning to love what he does and doing justly in all that we do. It's a difficult passage because you read it and you go, what does God require of you? Oh, justice, kindness, humility. Well, that sounds not easy at all. How am I supposed to be perfectly just, perfectly kind, perfectly humble? And if I can't be, then what do I have to give? Do I really have to give all the way up to my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Well, thankfully, living on this side of the New Testament, we know that the answer is no. There's nothing for us to give because God has already given it all. His firstborn son, Jesus, the fruit of his body, as it were, for the sin of our souls. God has already given Jesus the one person, the God-man who has lived perfect justice and kindness and humility so that we can learn to humbly walk with God and love what he loves and do what he would have us do. So I told you to save a little bit of room on your notes so I could modify the key idea. You remember it said you can't buy God, you can't buy off God at any price. And that's definitely true, but what I want you to walk away thinking about is something a little more expansive than that. You can't buy off at any price the God who already bought you at the ultimate price. The price has already been paid. It's not paid by you. It's not paid with thousands of rivers of oil or yearling calves or thousands of rams. It's paid by God's Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus, God is holding his hand out to you saying, all you have to do is take my hand and lift your feet. I'll guide you where I want you to go. Would you pray with me? Father, your call to justice, to mercy, or kindness, to humility is a difficult, difficult call. We want justice done, yes, but mostly for us. We want mercy, of course, for us. We often don't want to give it. Kindness even we would love to have, but mostly for ourselves, not for others. And boy, it sure would be helpful if other people were more humble. Father, in the times in which we are living, even as we prayed earlier in this service that the, the litany of challenges that our country is facing, that families are facing, individuals are facing, we pray that by the power of the Spirit of your Son, you would give us humility and give us a, a vision, a picture of what you love so that we could move out into this world both doing justice and doing justly in everything that our hands touch and all the things that you call us to. May we have the wisdom that comes only from you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God through the power of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray in his name.
Amen.